Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. The Blessed Virgin Mary is one of the most depicted people in artwork. She is seen on the walls of Byzantine churches, in the apses, and in many different ways, and she adorns the walls of different art museums all throughout the world. There are famous paintings of the Blessed Mother and maybe lesser known ones as well. I love images of Our Lady and uh, today I'm going to be speaking with Stephen Auth who is a member of Regnum Christi who sits on the National Board of the Lumen Institute and in 2011 he and Evelyn developed a spiritual tour of the New York's Metropolitan Museum entitled Man's Search for God, a history of art through the prism of faith and that's actually the subtitle uh, in a sense, for his new book with Sophia Institute Press, Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God Through Art and Time. When I reviewed the Sophia Institute catalog, this was one of the books I was looking forward to this summer for its release, and I wanted to be able to share it with everybody in my audience. So I'm glad that Stephen Auth is joining me today to talk about a pilgrimage to the museum. So thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for having me, Father. And, uh, you know, the first thing maybe I just want to start out with is the fact that you call your book a pilgrimage to the museum. That's the title. Maybe you came up with the title. Maybe Sophia Institute came up with that title. I know what it's like writing books and having titles kind of manipulated and changed from maybe your, your original vision. But I think it's so apt and fitting, a pilgrimage to the museum, because I was in Washington, D.C. at the National Gallery of Art back in November, and I was going through all of the different galleries that they had, and once I got to the religious section, it was so prayerful. And in fact, there were a few moments where I pulled out my rosary bead, and when I'm looking at an image of the nativity of Jesus, his his birth in Bethlehem, I prayed that mystery, or looking at the Annunciation or the Assumption, I was just really moved to prayer. And in a sense then, my visit to the museum really did become a pilgrimage. And so I really resonated with the title of your book. So why do you think a museum visit could also be a pilgrimage? Oh, it's absolutely. This uh, tour that we've been given that has now been um, really enriched with the book uh, is a pilgrimage. It was designed as a pilgrimage. The idea is to seek God through through art and through beauty and um, what we the reason we developed it uh, as you know Regno Christi we're fairly evangelical let's say in terms of our approach to everything uh, and and Evelyn and I felt like we needed an evangelical project uh, in New York we do a lot of street missions which you may be aware of um, that was a little bit more um, able to be dialed down or dialed up by giving people an experience of a journey towards God. I mean, in the Middle Ages, everyone took pilgrimages all the time, but nowadays it's a little more unique. It's a journey, right? And um, what's interesting about the culture today is everybody, in one way or another, is still seeking their creator. A lot of them don't know it. Um, but they're seeking beauty, right? Especially in art. Art appeals to people. And that's, we think, really, I mean, it's the image of God in our souls that we're seeking, even when we don't realize it. 
And, you know, the pilgrimage is, uh, for many devout Catholics, uh, many of them on the tour of the Med, and some have already read the pilgrimage. Its publication date, I think, is technically uh, two more days. But, um, you know, just almost moved to tears uh, going through some of this art that we present uh, that is so touching and so deep. And, and like all pilgrimages, it... It's designed, the journey is designed to help us find God, um, also to explain how others have sought for him. Um, in this journey, you will have ups and downs, I think. There are moments when we seem to almost have him in our grasp, and then other moments where he slips away. Uh, I hope it's the kind of a book that you can sort of cry, laugh, and eventually... Um, you know, joyfully, uh, you know, joyfully pursue. Uh, it, it ends on a real high note, I'll warn you, so that, you know, it's like not going to leave you dark and, and cold. <laughs> well, the the final chapter is called Christ Comes Out of Storage. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. How does Christ come out of storage? And, you know, I guess you, in a sense, you think about an art museum, maybe they have pieces that are, you know, put away for a while, and then they bring them out on display. And so when I read that, that's kind of immediately what I came up with, conjured up in my own mind, but I'm sure there's something more beyond that. Yeah, Father, as you read the book, you'll see that uh, the all, all these little vignettes and titles have at least double meanings, at least sometimes triple levels of meaning, which as all pilgrimages do. And the Ark of Pilgrimage uh, starts out in ancient Egypt in 5,000, in 3,000, 2300 BC, and then works its way 5,000 years forward to the modern era. And through that, you know, there are times when uh, God is very close to us uh, and others where we lose him. And particularly in the modern era when, you know, we decide to kill God off uh, and the rise of atheism. And you can see the artists really struggling to find their creator, even when they avow to not believe in him. And um, the, the tour gets a little bit dark. The book gets a little dark at that, those moments um, as we kind of lose God, if you will, like as all of us do at different points where we try to put ourselves in his stead, if you will. We try to become the creator instead of the created. And um, the... The pilgrimage ends with a painting from a modern artist of the crucifixion, uh, which is not the most popular of painting, you know, kind of scenes, even amongst a lot of Catholics these days. We like to focus on the resurrection, you know, in the Middle Ages. And there's some beautiful crucifixion imagery in in pilgrimage from the Middle Ages that just... You know, one, you mentioned Mary, one with Mary fainting at the cross, um, you know, having suffered its its passion or Christ's passion, you know, kind of with him. Um, but for the modern eye, the, uh, the crucifixion's a bloody scene, you know, and we're not particularly fond of it. And Dolly kind of solves that problem because he fills in what the medieval person would have understood. The cross is the path to salvation. They see a cross, a crucifixion, and they see salvation. But the modern eye just seems torture and death. So 
Dolly paints uh, Christ on the hypercube, as he calls it, um, as a resurrected Christ holding himself to the cross. And there's a whole backstory of Dolly that we explore that he was a actually devout atheist raised that way. And like many of us, has himself a reconversion experience to the Catholic faith of his mother. And you see in the painting how that almost comes about. Um, without going into all the details of it, uh, because you have to almost read the whole book to understand what's going on at the very end here. Uh, but certainly that, that imagery of, of Christ resurrecting, of love conquering hate, is a key message of how we find Christ and how Dolly paints himself through his wife as the little person adoring Christ as the big person. He kind of gets gets Christ straight, our relationship to him straight, and I think that's how he finds God. The reference to comes out of storage is is a double reference to the struggles we have in our current culture where we're constantly trying to put Christ in storage or even worse, just eliminate him altogether. Uh, and in the case of our little Met tour, there was a couple of year period there where the painting by Dolly was actually put in storage and uh, it took a little bit of effort to get, get him out. And there's a story around that too, which is very interesting in, in pilgrimage. And I'm looking at some of the other chapter titles and for example, chapter seven creation through the eyes of the creator. And again, I'm looking at this and I think about it. And I'm like, okay, well in a lot of artwork, and this could just be secular artwork too. You're looking at it, you see uh, different landscapes, different things being depicted. And, and maybe you're not in the religious section of the art gallery, but you look at that and you're like, wow, God created this, and really God is inspiring the artist who is painting and all of this. So you can kind of see how God is at work and how God is the creator, and you're looking at this through the eyes of the creator. Uh, would that be a good sense of creation through the eyes of the creator? Oh, yeah, Father, you're, you're, you're right on it there. And that, that title is for the chapter on the, on the Renaissance, which is the height you know, it's sort of the end of the Middle Ages, but the height of overt Catholicism in art. And um, the artists had had sort of a, developed a style really rooted in their own spirituality, which was they were really trying to show the world as if they were looking through the eyes of God and, and showing um, imagery in a kind of perfect state because god as for all our foibles and all our struggles he views us as perfect in many ways right we're his creations and the renaissance artists sort of got that and it's a reason why if you look at a piece of renaissance art it has a stillness to it a whole to it a perfection to it i mean a lot of people complain that renaissance art is too idealized and in a way it is idealized um, but that is the point. That's what the Michelangelos, the Raphaels are trying to show. Um, there, there's a famous, uh, maybe apocryphal story of uh, Michelangelo at the time that he was painting the Sistine Ceiling, which some people would think is the greatest work of art ever created. And, of course, he famously painted by night upside down. And, everything else. 
And Raphael, his rival at the time, was also painting by day with his retinue of assistants um, painting the loggia next door to the Sistine ceiling, which folks who have been to Rome may have seen. Uh, and they were rivals. And, you know, Raphael is trying to lighten the mood one dawn as he's walking into work. And Rembrandt is, uh, not Rembrandt, uh, Michelangelo is like trudging out. And uh, Raphael says, uh, Michelangelo, you look like God himself walking across the piazza this morning. And Michelangelo yells back, uh, well, no, but I just got finished painting his portrait. <laughs> wow. You know, I just heard this uh, story about Michelangelo. Uh, I was on a, a pilgrimage, actually, with some parishioners, and we went to uh, Chicago. We went to the Seven Sorrows Basilica, and they have a reproduction of the Pieta there. And um, basically what the priest who was giving us the tour, and this is like a life-size Pieta, uh, essentially said that that was a work that, you know, people were talking about who paint, who who made this and whatnot. And so Michelangelo one night went and put, you know, on there, signed it like this. I'm going to get the get it wrong. But, you know, this was made by Michelangelo of wherever he was from. And and then he felt so much sorrow and remorse, this tour guide was saying that he never signed another thing again. Is that a true story? Uh, that also may be apocryphal, but I, I've also heard that story. And, um, you know, it's kind of the journey we're all on. I mean, we all have, it, you know, the pilgrimage starts with the Santa Pride, uh, with the Egyptians trying to make themselves into gods in the afterlife. And uh, this theme of the Santa Pride getting in our way of finding God is, is throughout the pilgrimage, it comes up. But yeah, Michelangelo, like, like the rest of us, maybe pridefully, um, put you know chiseled his signature into the Pieta, and forever regretted it. You know, never signed another piece again. Um, so he he found his way home, if you will. Um, Father, I know you're big on Marian imagery, and there is some wonderful Marian imagery in in pilgrimage. Uh, you know, if you're interested, we could talk about some of it. Sure. But I think some of the some of the pieces in there, literally, and, and the um, the meditations on them will just uh, take it to tears. Uh, and and Mary appears frequently in the book. Um, she appears on a carved uh, ivory tusk found in the desert in the in the Palatine, which is basically in the in the area of. Um, uh, of Egypt up through uh, present-day Israel after the uh, Islamic conquest. But there's this beautiful carving. It's a Byzantine carving of Mary uh, huddling with the apostles, you know, leading them in prayer, looking up at the resurrecting, at the resurrected Christ. And this idea of Mary helping us figure out, um, you know, who's God, who isn't. Uh, there's this other image, um, which is a, is a kind of almost pivotal moment in in the tour itself. There's several Marian images that are pivotal moments um, in, in the in the in the book, but one of them um, is called uh, by Lorenzo Monaco's uh, Christ and Mary intervening for the vert uh, for the sinners, hmm. and 
What's wonderful about this painting is it it's painted just before the time of the High Renaissance. So it's sort of a transition moment between medieval art and, say, Renaissance art and modern art. And uh, you see both styles of art in the painting, which is, I think, just fantastic. And the main imagery is of a very large, oversized, uh, gigantic, actually, an eight-foot-sized canvas. And Jesus takes up a large element of it, God the Father above him, uh, Mary to his, uh, to his right. And Mary is appealing to Jesus for the sinners at her feet saying, by the breast I fed you, and she's showing him his, her breast in a very kind of visual way. You know, I, 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 I fed you to, to, to save, you know, to, to, uh, for you to, you know, complete your mission. And for goodness sakes, um, you owe me something here. I'm your mother, you know. <laughs> and, and Jesus is in turn uh, responding positively to his mother, looking up his father, pointing to his five wounds and saying, look, this was the reason I suffered, you know, to save these people. And God the Father looks down on them and sends the Holy Spirit, you know, the connection between the Father and the Son, the love of, of the two, like the Holy Spirit, and basically gives his assent. And down at the feet of Mary are the sinners. And what's fascinating about this painting is, as we've studied it, is the imagery of Christ of God the Father, of Mary, is in a kind of way that some people are critical of. You know, it's two-dimensional, it's that somewhat abstract, typical medieval painting, if you will. These guys didn't know any better how to paint. But, of course, they're trying to paint images in the spiritual realm. They specifically don't want to show something on earth. This is Christ, this is a dialogue going on up in heaven. Now, they have their halos on, which certainly evidences uh, the importance of, you know, their continued life and presence with us, if you will. But they're up in heaven. But down there at the knees of Mary, little tiny people, the little people, that's us, are painted in the Renaissance style, three-dimensional, solid figures on earth. And they're not idealized people at all. They're portraits of somebody. Every one of this group of five people all is obviously an individual. Hmm. And when you think about who are these people, the only conclusion we've been able to come to is these are the people who spent a small fortune to have this painted. The thing is painted in lapis blue in the background, which is very expensive, etc. So this would have been a very expensive work. And they're having themselves painted in as the sinners. And Mary gently pushing them forward with her hand, saying, go ahead, don't, don't be afraid, you know. And it just is a lovely image of how we find God, you know. We, we, we pray to Mary to intercede for us. We get on our knees, and we acknowledge our humility before God. Um, it's, it's just, I think, a very beautiful painting. There's another Marian image in the book. There's several, as I said, but another one that is maybe my favorite painting of all time. I call it the Catholic Mona Lisa. It was painted by a relatively lesser known um, Renaissance art, artist from Sicily, Antonello de Messina. And he painted it almost the same year as the Mona Lisa by da Vinci. But what's fantastic about 
the Catholic Mona Lisa, if you will, this image of Mary, the Annunciate, it's called the Virgin Annunciate, right? So the Annunciation. It's the only Annunciation painting that doesn't have the angel in it. So Mary appears alone in her room. It's dark. And she's looking out at the angel that has suddenly appeared. And you can tell the agent has suddenly appeared because she's been reading the, the, the Psalms. And her book of Psalms is fluttering in the breeze of the energy force of this angel suddenly appearing before her. And with one hand, she sort of grasps her veil in modesty. And with her right hand, she's reaching out, kind of curling it, considering the words of the angel. And the the scene evokes this idea, first that, you know, the, the ambiguity of the situation for, if you can imagine if we were in that situation, did, did this angel really appear to me? Am I crazy? Uh, what, what happened here, right? So there's a certain ambiguity. But more importantly, as she curls her hands and is thinking about what this is going to mean for her, um, you know, potentially stoning, really, right? I mean, at that time, uh, a suddenly uh, pregnant, un unconsummated marriage, uh, you know, that would be the typical punishment of assuming the husband uh, disowned her, if you will. Uh, but of course it works out differently, but here's Mary, uh, giving her assent and the way, uh, Messina paints Mary's eyes and her lips as she looks out at him, not mysteriously at all, but really firmly with, I get it. This is going to be difficult and I'm going to do it. You know, and how often do all of us even get that far, you know, to actually make our ascent? But more importantly, in those eyes and those firm lips, determined lips, do we then actually accomplish what we said we we're going to accomplish? You know, and, and Messina is focusing us on that, the importance of follow through of like, okay, you're going to do it, do it. it it's, it's a wonderful image. Uh, a lot of people keep it as a prayer card. It's it just really, really beautiful. Well, there's so much richness in everything that you just shared and so much more that really we could unpack and talk about. You know, the fact of one of the paintings, as you mentioned, the different individuals, the sinners, and Mary pleading in that sense for them. And I think that really captures, you know, what we pray in the Hail Mary. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. It captures the fact that you know, we cry to the the poor banished children of Eve from the Hail Holy Queen. Yeah, and uh, it captures our theology of her being our advocate before the throne of God, and that she does make that uh, case for us and assists us. And uh, you know, one of the things you said there about that piece too was the exposed breast, and so she's pointing to her breast and showing it to her son and saying, I nursed you. And, and that's, this is a very controversial aspect of depicting the Blessed Mother is exposing the breast. Now, I have a great devotion to Our Lady of La Leche. This is the nursing Madonna. There are yeah, lots of right, images yeah. of Our Lady of La Leche yeah. or the Maria Lachtens, as um, artists might call it. And uh, I, I've given talks about this image, and I've had people walk up 
out of the talks. And so it's interesting, you know, for you to bring that up. And it just reminds me just sometimes how people aren't able or in a position to understand or appreciate or receive this image. And I think some of it comes to the fact of a, a puritanical culture or a pornified culture or something that, that there's almost a sense of lust that people have rather than looking at the purity of the image. Yeah. And uh, Father, as you know, um, you know, Lady of Lecce, the, in, in the medieval world, um, people were more accepting of that and certainly understood that by pointing to her breasts, which she's really also emphasizing, in addition to her kind of, you know, you owe me one kind of relationship with Jesus, in a sense, um, also his humanity, that he was God, but also human, that he actually nursed at the breast of a mother like all of us did. So he had, you know... He, he, he has these two natures, and um, that was a way of the medieval painters to explain that to, you know, an often case in uh, a less literate, um, you know, uh, followers. Sure, definitely. And, and I, you know, you speaking there just reminded me of another point I often make about that, and, and you emphasizes, as you mentioned, the humanity of Jesus. And so sometimes I think we've tried to divinize Mary so much that we can't even appreciate the fact that she was a mother, and this is a natural part of motherhood. Yeah. And and that's the other thing about the Antonalda Messina. Like, you see in this image of this young girl alone in her room facing this angel— and this mission that, frankly, could go down as a Mission Impossible film. I mean, she, she, she's, first of all, got to escape getting stoned. Uh, then, then she knows that, for sure, uh, the king of the Jews is going to be after the kid, not to mention the Romans. And her only escape pouch is a 500-mile you know, trek across dangerous territory to Egypt. So, uh, you know, the idea that she stands in front of that this was what she faced. It wasn't all, you know, singing and, and uh, Christmas carols uh, at the time uh, of the Annunciation. And all of us have struggles that we face. And we can't always expect it to be, um, you know, Christmas carols, if you will. But it, it, it ends up well if we pursue it with a true heart. Uh, one of the things that comes out of the pilgrimage, I think it kind of emerges slowly and certain readers will get there quicker than others, but, and yours truly got there very slowly because, you know, it just took me a while to figure this out. But while, you know, I designed a pilgrimage as our search for God, if you will, it really, what it really is about is God's search for us. God finding us. Yeah. Art is able to do that. It's a powerful thing. As we see these different images, it kind of hits us at the core. And uh, we begin asking some of these deeper questions then. And as we reflect, it leads us, you know, seeing an image allows us to enter into meditation or contemplation. And I guess that's something I want to get to. What do you think the value of art is today? And maybe we're living in a time that people don't appreciate it as much. You know, I don't know how often people go to art museums these days, but 
what is the value of rediscovering uh, these beautiful masterpieces? Uh, I, I I think it's invaluable. Art is I, I you know artists have a special connection with their creator. Uh, they're particularly talented at painting or sculpting beauty. And beauty is the image of God in our souls. And I think, you know, one of the reasons we wrote Pilgrimage was that our experience uh, at the Met, and, you know, not to pick on the Met, any um, secular art museum of the day, people go to the museum because they're seeking beauty, actually, because they're seeking God, even though they don't even realize it in some cases. So we're we're all attracted to that. But one of the things that can turn you off these days in a museum is all the descriptions and even tours or got, you know the audio tours you take attempt to describe what's going on without using the word God. Hmm. The culture is secularized, and it's yeah, you know, I'm exaggerating as I usually do to make a point, but we try to describe the art without talking about what it's really about. And so you end up talking about, you know, interesting historical facts and uh, the style of the artist at the time uh, that he painted the painting or she painted the painting. And, you know, facts and figures that are interesting. The, the analysis becomes almost cold, scientific, archaeological, and yes, scientifically correct, perhaps. But without God in the description without god as the centerpiece of the narrative the very purpose of the art has been lost mm-hmm. and what i find is too many people go to a museum this day enthusiastic about seeing beauty and after 30 minutes or 45 minutes they've had enough i mean it, it just gets exhausting um you know going through a, a kind of scientific run through but once you re re bring God into the equation, if you will. The narrative becomes gripping. What we've experienced our tour of the museum is three and a half hours. Now, I have know of no tour of a museum that goes that long. But what's interesting about it is that by the time we're done, people want more. They're they're literally like, is it over? And I think that's how people will feel about reading pilgrimage. I mean, that's the experience we're trying to create here because we can't give the tour to as many people as we're trying to touch with this message. But I think the experience you'll get when you read the pilgrimage is, is it over as opposed to how do I get through that? It's very different once you bring God into it. Of course, he's there all along, but once you acknowledge, maybe is the better way to say it, acknowledge his presence within the art. I think it's an interesting concept for us to think about. You know, there are people who don't know religion or don't know faith, and so they could walk into some of these sections and they see all this religious artwork, and they might actually legitimately ask someone, what is this story? And the artwork is going to tell you the story of the Annunciation, and then the Visitation, and then the birth and the Nativity of John the Baptist. And it almost goes through the entire story of the New Testament, salvation history, and even more so. So I bet there are some people out there that encounter the story of religion through art, maybe for the very first time. And 
One of the things I realized, too, my very first visit to an art museum maybe 10 years ago was that uh, I realized that you need to know your history. Like you're walking through and maybe they have a statue of St. Barbara or something like that. And uh, that that was one that I recall. But you have to know, well, why is she important? Why is she in here? Why did this artist feel so compelled to present St. Barbara? Or who is Diocletian and what is this uh, right. that, you know, you need to know the story uh, to better appreciate it. Oh, so true, it. Father. So true. And and one of the things that we're very proud of about the pilgrimage is that it's a it's a wonderful blend of um we don't run from from art historical techniques or from history. Uh you know, I had training in both when I was coming through college. Uh what we overlay is a kind of deep, not a kind of a deep religious faith. And it's the combination of 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 the of all of them that gives such richness to the art. But you can't just go in there, um, you know, with a deep faith, but not understanding what's actually going on here um, at the time, or even what's going on in the life of the artist. I mean, you know, it, as we explore some of the more mysterious paintings uh, in the Battle of Light and Darkness, is one of the title chapters. Um, the time, you know, the 16 and 1700s in Europe, the paintings sometimes don't even appear to be religious at all, but they're deeply religious, actually. Uh, but unless you start to understand what's going on in the life of the artist at that time, you kind of could miss something that could be very, very powerful to understand. And we, and we try to unpack that, you know, as we get through that period. Um, you know, we also get into paintings that don't have any religious over religious imagery at all in them um and underneath once you unpack them and again unpack what's going on in the artist's life at that time you begin to distill a very deep at least spiritual um significance so it's uh it's a wonderful journey but you do have to you have to have um I don't want to say skilled. I don't know that I'm skilled, but I think you got to have someone who's who's worked this route a few times to make sure you don't um, go too far off the trail. I know we're running low on time, and so I just want to ask maybe a few quick, like rapid fire art questions, just to get your immediate response, I guess. And uh, one of them, maybe to begin with, would be simply: I'm sure you've been to lots of art museums out there. How many do you think you've been to? Which ones do you recommend people to check out? Well, I, I've been to, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question, Father. I must have been to Dozens? over 100. Or, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, sure. over 100 I, around the world. Um, well, I, I love the Metropolitan Museum. I mean, there are certain museums that have encyclopedic uh, collections, so I would have the Met on that list. Uh, certainly Chicago's got a great museum, Boston, uh, the National Gallery in D.C., the Louvre, I'm sure people have been to, and and there's nothing like the Vatican collection. Sure. Uh, how about your favorite artist or artists, people that we should check out their paintings? Rembrandt's my favorite. Uh, he brings it all together 
uh, Rembrandt really is the height of the attempt by art to paint the soul of man. Uh, and I think if you understand Rembrandt and read the pilgrimage, you'll understand he was painting his own soul in many of his, his works. And lastly, maybe your favorite piece of artwork that you've seen, or maybe that you have in your home. Well, Father, I couldn't, I couldn't afford my favorite work of art <laughs> sure. uh, in my home. So uh, I'll go with uh, Rembrandt again, maybe. Uh, there are so many favorites, but I'll go with uh, Aristotle with the bust of Homer in Rembrandt. Okay. Uh, it, it's in the Metropolitan. Okay, well, there you have it. So uh, your book is Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God Through Art and Time. It's by Stephen Auth, and you've joined me today. And I'm so delighted by our conversation because really this has been a topic I've wanted to talk about, and uh, you've enriched me so much with it today. Thank you, Father. It's been a real pleasure uh, to, to be on the show with you. And his book, Pilgrimage to the Museum, is available from Sophia Institute Press or wherever you buy your Catholic books. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show and for all the many ways that you support the podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, be sure to check out Sock Religious. I love their socks. I love their shirts. And so go over to Sock Religious, use the link in the show notes, and buy some holy socks or some holy shirts that you can wear to evangelize your family and your friends. If you also want to support the podcast, I invite you to please share the podcast with your friends or on your social media platforms. Rate or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't mind, please follow me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My handle is at fr edward looney you'll see all of the posts all of the content that i put out each week by following me there thanks so much again for listening today know that i am entrusting you to the heart of mary asking her to pray for you this day and every day and if you don't mind say a prayer for me too let us remain united in prayer to jesus through mary god bless